I began the patriarch study by saying that Genesis 12 to 50 is one of the best places in the Bible to find a continuous and enjoyable storyline. However, because God loves us, he's recorded the hard truth in the Bible, not just some flowery version. The account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19 gives us fair warning that sin has dire consequences. It's not a pleasant part of the story, but one we need to hear. Now, this Bible story isn't the first to introduce the concept of judgment. God passed judgment in the third chapter of the Bible, after the first human beings, Adam and Eve, disobeyed him. He removed them from the paradise where they'd enjoyed perfect fellowship, and their bodies immediately began to deteriorate. As the earth became more populated, the impact of sin multiplied. Genesis 6 through 8 tells us eventually humanity was so thoroughly depraved, God destroyed every living being on earth by flood, except the one lone righteous man, Noah, and his small family. The New Testament speaks of the two events of God's flood, judgment by flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as warnings to all people that God must and will judge sin. He is a holy God. His goodness and justice demand payment for sin. It can't be overlooked. When Jesus died on the cross, God's demand for justice was met. But Christ's payment is only credited to the accounts of those individuals who choose to receive his payment on their behalf. The truth is that sin has so deceived and corrupted the human heart, apart from God's grace, people reject his peace offering. Deep within us, we don't want to renew a relationship with our Creator because doing so will put us in debt to Him. We don't want God's self-rule over God's rule over our lives. We want self-rule. Therefore, and again I say, apart from God's grace, apart from God's grace, people continue to deceive themselves about their need and they refuse even mock the idea of future judgment. The accounts of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah were recorded as historical reminders and warnings to us that God indeed does and has judged sin and that each of us will face a future final judgment. Now, our last lesson covered the first half of Genesis 18, and it introduced a conversation between God and Abraham. The first part of their conversation was about God's promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son within a year. 
Now, this week's lesson begins with the second half of that conversation in verse 16, in which God and Abraham converse about God's impending judgment of Sodom. The text suggests that the Lord chose to share his plans with Abraham because he knew of the opportunity Abram would have to pass on information about his character and plans to the many people who would descend from and be influenced by him. Specifically, it seems God expected Abraham to instruct his posterity regarding God's role as judge of all mankind and his justice in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham witnessed all of these events and surely would have passed it on. And of course, this insight would not only exalt God, it would give fair warning that eventually all sinners face judgment. Now, as a reminder from last week, three men, in quotes men, we say, came to visit Abraham. And verses 10 and 13 showed us that one of these three was the Lord. We said that was a theophany. Glancing ahead at verse 1 of chapter 19, we learned that the other two men were angels. And as the story unfolds, it becomes obvious that these two angels left Mamre, where Abraham was settled, to investigate Sodom as divine representatives. Now, the Lord didn't go down to those cities because he didn't know what was going on there. As the story continues, we see that he did so in order to rescue Lot and to prove his justice in condemning these very wicked cities. So the two men left for the city, but Abraham, we're told in verse 22, remained standing before the Lord. Now, this is a good place to point out the two contrasts that become evident as the story develops. Abraham is standing before the Lord, and the first contrast is between Abraham's intimate fellowship with God and God's judgment of the Sodomites. There's a sharp stand in sharp relief against one another. The second contrast is between two righteous men, Abraham and Lot. Yes, 2 Peter 2.7 does call Lot a righteous man. Abraham here is standing before the Lord. It's a picture of every person who by faith has made friendship with God his or her highest priority. On the other hand, we learn that Lot barely escaped judgment. Lot was saved because he was in a right standing with God by faith, the only way anyone can come into a right standing with God. But unlike Abraham, Lot made decisions that compromised the priority of his friendship with God. Abraham, believing God was just, sought to understand more about God's mercy. Would God delay judgment on the ungodly for the sake of just a few righteous people? Abraham first asked God to spare Sodom if as few as 50 righteous people could be found there. And the Lord agreed to spare Sodom for the sake of 50 righteous people. Abraham next asked the Lord if there, he would save the city if there were only 45 righteous people. Again, 
God answered affirmatively. After that, Abraham pleaded with God by diminishing degrees of 10 for the sake of 40, then 30, then 20. Then he said, what if only 10 can be found there? Now, the the Bible doesn't say why Abraham didn't ask the Lord to spare Sodom for the sake of less than 10 righteous people. Some have suggested that Abraham had Lot's family of six in mind, six including the two sons-in-law, assuming that maybe a meager number of four additional people could possibly be found in Sodom. Maybe Lot even had sons who aren't mentioned in in the text. Or perhaps the Spirit of God simply impressed on Abraham not to push any further. You see, Abraham understood unlimited mercy on God's part would make him unjust. In the end, neither God's mercy nor his justice was diluted, for the one righteous person was spared with his daughters while the wicked were punished. So quickly we come upon our first principle in this lesson, that is that God is a consuming fire to the wicked, but a friend to the righteous. He's a consuming fire to the wicked, but a friend to the righteous. The New Testament indicates that people will be judged according to what they know, but it also teaches that all people have enough information about God in creation and in their God-given consciences to be convicted of rejecting him. Those who live outside a relationship of friendship with God have good reason for the many fears that sin stirs up. Judgment awaits them. Abraham was greatly concerned about Lot and God's judgment of Sodom. But his conversation with God in Genesis 18 shows that he had no fear for his own life. He was standing before God. Abraham was God's friend. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 explains that the more we know and experience the love of God, the more our lives are free of fear. For as verse 18 says, fear has to do with punishment. Those who know the love of God can live free of fear and have confidence on the day of judgment. I love Romans 8.1 that declares, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Are you free from fear of condemnation? Friends of God are. They believe God. They believe him when he says Christ has freed them from their death sentence. Well, the Bible says both Abraham and Lot were righteous. But in chapter 19, we see Lot's heart exposed, revealing that he loved other things more than he loved God. Verse 1 tells us that when the angels arrived in Sodom, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Lot invited them to his house, which later in verse 25, we learn, was also in the city. Remember when Lot first separated from Abraham, he, according to chapter 13, verse 12, pitched his tents near Sodom. Then in the intervening time span, Abraham rescued Lot from Kedileomer, that was chapter 14, 
And here, fast forward to chapter 19, it's clear that Lot had moved into the city. Furthermore, Lot's position at the gateway indicates that he was an integrated citizen of Sodom, if not a leader. Since 2 Peter 2 tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, it's possible that Lot sought some measure of positive influence on the Sodomites by his position. But sadly, as we learn in the end, he didn't have any. We certainly can't characterize Lot as a man who wasn't a believer in Yahweh because of what Peter says about him. But what does seem true is that Lot made some pretty bad choices. He may have despised the Sodomites' ways, yet still he tolerated them in order to personally benefit in whatever way he could from the land and the culture. Warren Wearsby's comments are helpful. He says, had Lot gone to Sodom because God directed him, his being there would have fulfilled divine purposes. After all, God put Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, Esther in Persia, and their presence turned out to be a blessing. Worldliness isn't a matter of physical geography, but of heart attitude. Wearsby says, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body arrived there. No doubt he got his first love for the world when he went to Egypt with Abraham, and he never overcame it. Well, as we see before that evening ended, the moral condition of the Sodomites was very evident. Verse 4 of chapter 19 tells us that all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house, calling to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them, literally so that we will know them. The first thing we note is that it wasn't a few men, nor was it only the young or the old men. It was all the men from every part of Sodom who came to Lot's door. It seems the sin of Sodom had reached a saturation point. Secondly, the nature of their sin is emphasized. Homosexual gang rape. I find Bill Arnold, his explanation very helpful. He, he says that under pressure from pro-homosexual groups, some modern scholars have argued the sin of Sodom described in Genesis 18 and 19 wasn't homosexuality. Instead, it's argued the sin of the Sodomites was a more general disorder of society organized against God or maybe one of abuse of justice. Arnold goes on to explain, the Hebrew word know in the expression we will know them has a wide range of meaning, and it is true that the word is used for sexual intercourse only in a minority of occurrences. However, context is the most important feature in determining the meaning of a particular word, and the term know clearly has sexual connotations elsewhere in Genesis and seems the most likely meaning here in light of Lot's response. 
The offer of his virgin daughters who've never slept with a man, verse 8, literally who've not known a man, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. The use of the term no with a clear sexual meaning only three verses later just seems to settle the issue. Judges 19 tells a similar story in which knowing someone obviously refers to having sex. And finally, as the nail in the coffin, Jude 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, end of quote. The evidence overwhelmingly supports that homosexuality was the sin of Sodom. And yes, the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a perversion of the natural order and that it is sin. You can find that in passages like Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, but also in the New Testament, places like Romans 1. But please note that nowhere does scripture declare it to be an unforgivable sin? Historically, however, its prevalence in any society is characteristic of serious spiritual and social deterioration, sometimes pre preceding the overthrow of a culture, as was the case not only with Sodom, but also with Canaan, Phoenicia, and Rome. God is patient, not wanting any to perish. He gives ample opportunity for confession and repentance. And Christians who treat gay people or those trapped in any sin without deep compassion are not following Christ's example. Now, there doesn't seem to be any good explanation for Lot's offer of his virgin daughters as substitutes for his guests. Maybe Lot thought because his daughters were engaged to sodomites, they'd somehow avoid being harmed? I don't know. Nevertheless, even his willingness to put them at risk is pretty deplorable, wouldn't you say? My. In verse 10, we're told that the angels pulled Lot back into the house and miraculously struck all the men outside the door blind, preventing them from even finding the door. Next, the angels warned Lot to gather any relatives living in the city because the city was about to be destroyed. Lot went out and spoke to the men who were betrothed to his daughters. Uh, did you wonder if they were among those just standing at the door? Wow. Well, here we find another sad commentary about Lot. Because when he warned his sons-in-law that the Lord was about to destroy the city, we're told that they thought he was joking. That response tells us that although the sins of Sodom were inwardly distressing to Lot, he hadn't proved a credible witness for God and his community, not even to his own sons-in-law. Furthermore, Lot's hesitation to leave the city with his daughters at the angels' pleading depicts him pretty unfavorably. The angels mercifully and forcefully took his family by the hand and led them out of the city, instructing them to flee to the mountains without looking back. 
they were told not to stop in the plain. Apparently, God planned to destroy all the minor cities of the plain that surrounded Sodom. But we see that Lot pled to be spared from traveling the long distance to the mountains, saying he couldn't get there in time to escape the disaster. He asked instead for permission to run to the small town of Zoar. In doing so, he was apparently asking God to spare a town God hadn't intended to spare. Lot hadn't enough faith to believe God could get him to the mountains, the very place God was sending him. Well, in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Some versions use the word fire and brimstone to describe what rained down. The whole Jordan Valley constitutes an enormous fault in the earth's service, giving earthquake, uh, given, that's very given to earthquake conditions. So some have suggested perhaps an earthquake occurred. And since in chapter 14, verse 10, where, where tar pits are mentioned and inflammable asphalts long been known in the area, maybe the earthquake caused the deposits of sulfur to erupt and then shower back down in flames of fire. God sometimes uses nature to bring judgment, as he did in the great flood of Genesis 6 and 7. But however it happened, God directed it. Sadly, verse 26 tells us that Lot's wife looked back. And this seems to be an indication of her longing to return. Remember, they were told not to look back. It very, at the very least, Lot's wife seems to have regretted leaving Sodom. Apparently, she'd grown quite comfortable there. It was her home. She seems more concerned about leaving behind the comforts of Sodom than she was about obeying God. Whether or not she was involved in the sin of Sodom, she secretly loved the city. And she stands for a symbol of all time of the demise of those who love the world more than God. The only explanation we're given here of her death is that she became a pillar of salt. Now, I've been talking a lot about judgment today, and it's important for us to know what the Bible teaches about God's judgment. A holy and just God can't leave sin unpunished. Ultimately, God will judge each person individually. But that doesn't mean that righteous people are unaffected by disaster. All of us are victims of the curse of sin on the world. Allow me to highlight three particular biblical truths about judgment. First, God's judgment isn't always immediate. Genesis 6.3 indicates that God waited an additional 120 years after he decreed judgment in Noah's day in order to give people more time to repent. God waited more than 400 years after he foretold the Canaanites' destruction before it was carried out. In both cases, annihilation occurred as a judgment by God when sin had reached its full measure. Second, 
Although judgment isn't always immediate, second, God's judgment is certain and it will be complete. The Bible is exceedingly clear that a future day of judgment is coming. The basis of God's judgment will be his absolute and complete knowledge of every circumstance and of every person's thoughts, actions, and motives. Because of this, not one of his judgments will be unjust, even in the smallest degree. Nothing is going to be overlooked. Now, Jesus said if the miracles that he'd done in Capernaum would have been done in Sodom, the Sodomites would have repented, concluding it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment. Find that in Matthew eleven twenty four, And I point that out because this is one of the places in the, that the Bible reveals future judgment to be more severe for people who've had opportunity to hear about Jesus than for those like the Sodomites who had not. Jesus' words also indicate that worse things can happen to a person than merely physical death. Future judgment will involve permanent separation from God in a place where none of God's benefits can be found. Think of it. No light, no comfort, no joy, no peace, no communion with others, no sense of satisfaction, no fulfillment of any desire or need. Separation from the God they chose to reject will be just as they wished, complete. God's judgment is certain and it will be complete. And third, God's judgment will be based on whether or not a person's sins have been pardoned by his son, Jesus. Those who have not had their sin nature dealt with by receiving the pardon offered them through faith in Jesus will be judged according to their sins, their own personal actions, and face eternal punishment according to them. Those who have had their sin nature dealt with, as Abraham did, by entering a personal relationship with God by faith, will be judiciously pardoned for Jesus' sake. We, these people, will have our lives evaluated for the purpose of receiving reward, and we will enter eternal joy in God's presence. Well, we learn that Lot and his daughters ultimately did go to live in the mountains. His daughters saw that their father wasn't taking any action to find husbands for them, so they took matters into their own hands with the goal of, in their words, preserving their family line through their father. They secretly plotted to get their father drunk and have sexual relations with them. You know, it's not entirely surprising considering everything we've already learned about this family. Surely the choices of their parents and the moral conditions in which they were raised in Sodom greatly impacted their own characters. You know, you'd think Abraham would have had enough men willing to have married Lot's daughters within his very large household. 
Shouldn't Lot have much preferred this to leaving his daughters husbandless? His own poor past decisions and his daughter's personal lack of integrity are really both to blame for the shameful way the story ended. Believers will be spared from condemnation at the final judgment, but they're not always spared from the natural consequences of their actions in this life. And hear this, because Lot's decision to live in Sodom cost him dearly. Now, we don't know what happened to Lot, you know, personally after his sons were born. Maybe he awakened to his foolishness and repented. But the Lord knows. He knows everything. Every thought and attitude of our hearts. Abraham knew this when he implored, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So that brings us to our second principle. The judge of the earth knows and will reveal what is in our hearts. It's going to be revealed what's in our hearts. Now let's get real here. It may be easy to read Lot's story and judge him for stupidity. But if Lot a man the Apostle Peter called righteous could fail in these ways? How much more easily could we? 1 John 2, 15 and 17 warn us, do not love the world or anything in the world, for the world and its desires, its lusts, pass away. That was Lot's error. He loved the pleasures of the world too much. And knowing the difference between enjoying the good gifts God gives us and clinging to them is a matter of a personal matter that requires self-examination. Every Christian must honestly answer the question, what matters to me the very most? Often, the crises in our life reveal the truth about whether God is most important to us. Eric Liddell was born to Scottish missionary parents in January of 1902 in China. At age five, he and his older brother began attending a school for missionary children outside London. As Eric grew, his natural athletic ability became exceedingly evident. And eventually, Liddell was sent to represent the UK and Scotland as a runner in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Now, the 100-meter race was his specialty. But in the fall of the preceding year, Eric learned that the Olympic Committee scheduled his signature event for a Sunday. Biographer Eric Metaxas writes, As far as Liddell was concerned... Sunday was the Lord's Day, not a day for playing games, even the Olympic Games. Instead, it was a day for rest and worship. As Eric saw, Liddell saw it, running in the Olympics on that day was out of the question. As it turned out, he also gave up the opportunity to run two relay races that were scheduled for Sunday. 
And despite much pressure from the British Olympic Committee, he was unmovable in his resolve. He would not race on Sunday. Now, there was a 400-meter event, and that was scheduled for Thursday. And although Eric began to train for this longer race, it, it really wasn't his, his signature thing, and he wasn't expected to win. But when the day of that race finally came, Eric drew the outside lane, widely considered the worst possible condition, position. Oh, things went from bad to worse. But in his dressing room at the stadium, Liddell unfolded a note a relative stranger had passed to him, and he read the following words. It says in the old book, him that honors me, I will honor. Eric won the gold medal that day in the 400. Not only did he win, but he beat his nearest competitor by the unfathomable distance of five meters, setting a new world record. You see, Eric Liddell decided he loved God more than he loved anything the world could offer him. Ironically, as Metaxas points out, had Eric Liddell run that 100-meter signature race as he was urged to do, he would be largely forgotten today outside of Scotland, as most Olympic runners usually are. But as it turned out, those 1924 Olympics were hardly the crowning glory of Liddell's life. Eric returned to China in 1925, where he served the Lord until his death in a Japanese internment camp in 1943, long before his internment, long before his decision to return to China. Eric had decided what he loved most, and it was not the pleasures the world offered. He put God first. When Lot was faced with the decision of where he would live, Lot made his decision on the basis of what looked good to him. He thought the well-watered plain near Sodom would benefit him most. The decision that seemed, from a sensual perspective, to be to his benefit, in the end, resulted in his shame. My friend, have you made your decision? Have you received Christ's pardon so that you can live free from fear of God's final judgment? And if so, have you determined what you will love most? It's unlikely that the crises we face in life will be the time when such decisions are made. Rather, those crises will reveal the attitude already contained in our heart. What pleasures of this world are you most tempted to cling to? Think about it. What pleasures am I most tempted to cling to? Many pleasures, you see, in and of themselves, are good gifts of God for which we should be thankful. They should be enjoyed. But each one of us as Christians must examine our own heart 
to know whether these gifts have actually become loves that replace the position in our heart to be reserved for God alone. We have no idea what price we may pay for loving them. In fact, we probably won't fully know what loving them has cost us until we stand before God, and we will not be able to say that we weren't warned. Thank you.